You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. If you will, take your Bible this morning, turn to John chapter 20, John chapter 20 today, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 8 to begin our study today. John chapter 20, we are just today and next week, and we will finish the Gospel of John. Obviously, we've not looked at every verse of the Gospel of John, but we've looked at the lion's share of it and looked at what it reveals to us about Jesus through the lens of John and God's inspired perspective through uh, his life and experience and relationship with Christ. And we want to look at the second to the last uh, chapter of this book, John chapter 20, and let's begin in verse number one. John chapter 20, let's begin in verse one. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark on the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then verse two, she runneth, cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple a reference to John, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter. And I think I've joked about this before. I just find it so hilarious. Guys have to tell who got there first, right? <laughs> and so John here is very clear that he beat slowpoke Peter. They ran both together, the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher, and he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then come a Sipon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes uh, lie, and the napkin which was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. And then notice verse 8. Then went in also that other disciple, this is John speaking autobiographically, which came first to the sepulcher, notice this, and he saw and believed. And so we want to look at this morning Christ as the visible resurrection, Christ as the visible resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us this past week. Thank you for being able to say thank you to you and to do it in different ways and colors and hues of whatever life stage we're at today, either with a full house and the usual um, traditions, or Lord, maybe a bit more isolated or lonely, or even still grieving and processing, Lord, maybe that empty chair, empty house. We thank you that you're enough. We thank you that your presence was palpable this past week, uh, that you've deposited within us. We know you as Savior, and Lord, just different interactions we had. We thank you for all that you did, and we give you glory and honor for that. Pray, Father, as we now enter this time of study of your word, that you would bring to bear in our hearts your truth, Lord, the realities of it, specifically the empty tomb and what that means for us. And Lord, may we identify today where there are barriers between us and you, things that hinder our fellowship and our relationship with you, that, Lord, we have no excuse to tolerate and entertain in light of the empty tomb and the power of the resurrection. Pray that you would stir and move in us, strengthen us, challenge us, encourage us, we pray, for the faithful adherence of your word. In Christ's name, amen. I saw this picture the other day, uh, so here's the picture, and then here was the caption um, that shows you how we view things through different perspectives, 
this, the title of this picture was the world's smallest cow, <laughs> um, a cow that can stand on the top of a fence post. Now, when you first look at the picture, it kind of looks like that, but we all know that it's all in your perspective, right? The world's smallest cow, probably not. If you climbed over that fence and got up next to that uh, Holstein, you would realize it's not as small as it looks from the camera lens. Can I just tell you as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the further we get from it, not just um, date-wise, the, the empty tomb, we're now at least approaching, if not surpassed, 2,000 years since Jesus came out of that tomb. And the further we get from that as God's people, it tends to shrink or be diminished, not in its, its intrinsic power and significance, but in our perception of it. Also, for a lot of us in the room, we've been saved now for many years, right? Decades and decades. Some of us are newer to the faith, but a lot of us are not. And as you move further away from it, if we're not careful, also we move further away from the Jesus who came out of that tomb and all that that means for us as the risen and living Savior. And so we want to talk about today how Christ here in the text reveals himself not just to these disciples, but to us anew and afresh as the visible resurrected power of God for us. And so nowhere do we probably underappreciate the incarnation of Jesus more than where we underappreciate his resurrection. Um, and there's a lot of significance connected to his resurrection that we need to be open to rethinking. Now, if you read the Gospels, Matthew's account, we're now in Matthew, right, in our, our uh, being disciples of Jesus this year. We're now in the Gospel of Matthew, and you read through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Each of them have different emphases or colors or hues of the Gospel story that uniquely together give us the 4D, if you will, version of uh, the Incarnation. And John's Gospel specifically is about belief. It's about that God and Jesus specifically is who he claimed to be. So John here ends his account on a high note of not just he heard about the resurrection of Jesus, but he saw it with his own two eyes. Um, and it was this evidence that you notice here in verse 8, he saw and believed. And so John didn't just follow Jesus through his earthly ministry or even just to the foot of the cross as we studied last week. He actually went with Jesus all the way to the tomb. Um, John stayed close to Christ in these seasons of his ministry, and so uniquely is positioned to give us perspective on how to be close to him ourselves. And throughout, the book, uh, throughout chapter 20, you will see over and over, see, saw, um, looked, uh, these, all of these, these visible, tangible uh, evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so John here emphasizes the unmistakable bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now here's what's interesting that we're going to study today. Though John believed some of the other disciples, some things worked or wiggled their way between the disciple and the Jesus who had just conquered the tomb. And so we're going to see three different areas where John identifies a barrier or a hindrance to belief experienced by other disciples in this day that often we also navigate in our day. And so let's talk about today greater intimacy with Jesus that is the result of three refining visions of his resurrection. They refine out of us certain things that hinder uh, our relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, let's talk first of all about areas of 
our lives where Jesus' visible resurrection gives to us his power and his presence to overcome theories, theories that creep into our minds. Now, if you go down to verse 15, we'll look at the interluding verses in just a moment. But notice in verse 15, Jesus appears. Mary doesn't know who it is. And I want you to notice, we'll come back to that in just a moment, one little word in the middle of verse 15. So Jesus saith unto her, woman, why weepest thou whom seekest thou? Notice this next, these next few words. She, supposing him to be a gardener, saith unto him. Much of the grief that Mary Magdalene, that's being referenced here at the first chunk of John chapter 20, much of the grief that was in her life, listen to me, was the result of theories she had that were out of sync with what God had just done. Theories about what God has done or what he's doing that displace the power and presence of Jesus Christ. Heidi and I were speaking at a couples conference a few months ago in Michigan. Yes, even after the game yesterday, we still minister to people in Michigan. They need the Lord desperately up there. And uh, so we were trying to strengthen marriages and do our part. And, and I don't know if you guys are like me, but the longer I go, the more I realize how old and out of touch I am with things. So we're sit- I'm sitting in the front seat, passenger seat, the pastor's driving, Heidi and the pastor's wife from the second row, and then their daughter, who I uh, did premarital counseling with her and her husband now, were in the back row. So we're all, we had just gone to this conference, we're driving back, and I preached at their church Sunday, and they started talking about something I had never heard before. Um, maybe, maybe you're aware of this, but I was not called lab-grown diamonds. Have any of you heard of this? This is a thing. Some of you have. You high rollers out there, okay? Um, lab-grown diamonds from everything I can read. And I was kind of, wait, and she was talking about, well, so-and-so, she was showing pictures to the ladies in the car. Her diamond is bigger than normal because it's a lab-grown diamond. And I'm like, wait, what is that? And so we were talking about that. Um, And if you haven't heard of this, a lab-created diamond is grown, quote-unquote, inside a lab using cutting-edge technology that replicates the natural diamond-growing process. They're not cubic zirconium, okay, ladies. Um, They have all the same physical and chemical properties of a mined diamond. The result is a diamond that is chemically, physically, and optically the same as those grown beneath the Earth's surface. Isn't that amazing? I'd never heard of that until just a few months ago. So you you can either go cheaper or go bigger, okay? And most, I think, in our day probably opt to go bigger. Um, But it is a lab-grown diamond. May I say to you today, lovingly, many Christians are miserable because we are artificially creating things that we look to for life, for power, for energy. Listen to me, when we have all that we need that was created in the earth through the finished power of Jesus who conquered the grave. And so our own theoretical ways of pursuing life and energy and power These theories actually rob us of much of what Jesus is trying to do right in front of us that we look past through these theories. And so we see Mary, though sincere, slipping into this tendency. Go back, if you will, to the first couple of verses, and let's talk about how Mary struggled with her theories and then how Jesus lovingly addresses them and supplants them with the evidence of his bodily resurrection. If you go back to verse number one, so it's dark. So let's be fair to Mary. This is a, 
a disorienting, confusing part of the story. We already know how it ends. She did not, though Jesus had told his disciples what was going to happen. She sees the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Notice then she runs to Simon, Peter, and John. And notice that she doesn't just say the sepulcher is empty. Notice what she says. They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. And so we see Mary constructing her own set of facts to explain this situation. All right, let me give you a couple of subpoints under this quickly. Number one, draw even closer to Jesus, theory-altering evidence. So Jesus wants to present to us as his followers evidence that alters our theories, that changes our outlook from what we have constructed to what clearly he has done through his resurrection power. Draw even closer to Jesus' theory-altering evidence. And so in her confusion and disappointment, Mary, who had had seven devils cast out of her back in Luke chapter 8, jumps to these conclusions that someone has stolen the body of Christ. Now, what I love in verse 2 is Peter and John now, following down verse 3, they don't just accept the theory, they go to dissect it, they go to examine it. And so we see that as we just read, John and Peter going to the tomb. All right, go to verse 11. So back now to Mary, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and she wept as she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeing two angels in white sitting, the one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, notice this, here it is again, her theory, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. So not only did she share her theory with her fellow disciples, she was so sure of her theories that she's talking to angels about it and affirming this is what happened, and I don't know where they have put him, but I know that someone took uh, Jesus from the tomb. Can I assure you this morning that God fulfills his promises his way with his power? He doesn't need us to try to prove it or explain it or validate it with our own theories. And I notice in our day that churches tend to move away from biblical doctrine. Like if I told you, and we're not doing this for the record, but if I said, hey, the next big sermon series we have is on doctrine. Doctrine doesn't always inspire us. It doesn't always move us. Hey, you've got to come hear this sermon series at our church about doctrine. Doctrine is just an exciting word and concept. The church, though, tends to move away from doctrine at its own peril, right? Um, I was reading the other day an author who said this, when a church sees biblical doc- when a church acts as biblical doctrine, its members may initially prosper from the little sap of truth previously passed down, but eventually the church will die because of its malnourished roots. We've got to come back to these basic doctrines and truths instead of starting to develop our own theories and thoughts, right? We've got to come back to it. We've got to come back to it. We've got to come back to it. And nowhere do we need to keep coming back to doctrine than the doctrine that Jesus conquered death, he conquered hell, and he gives to us new life. That's a doctrine we have to keep refining in our minds, keeping us from letting this false teaching to creep in. Now, there's a little question, rhetorical question in verse 13 that we also need to ask ourselves. Look at verse 13. These two angels in white, they're sitting, one at the head, and the other at the feet of where the body of Jesus would have been laid. And they say unto her, 
whether they said it in unison or one said part, the other said another, or just one listened and one spoke. Notice this question, women or woman, why weepest thou? Why weepest thou? May I say to you today, when we rely upon our own theories, divorced from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will always tolerate and accept unnecessary sorrow. One of the things that concerns me, just being blunt with you today, is why are we as Christians so mopey? Why are we so fearful? Why are we so panicky? We follow the only religious leader of all time who came back from the grave. We go to visit his grave because it's empty. No one else has that. No one else claims that. And so this theoretical view of life and how to get energy and power And maybe the loss of it in our lives creates unnecessary sorrow. Don't tolerate it. Don't accept it. Put new and afresh your belief into Jesus who is alive. All right, go to verse 14. So they ask her this question. She responds again with her theory in verse 13. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, notice this, and knew not that it was was Jesus. Number two, jot this down. So draw even closer to Jesus' theory-altering evidence. Number two, draw even closer to Jesus' theory-altering revelation. So he not only alters our theory with evidence, number two, he alters it with fresh revelation. I don't know what Mary was thinking, but I would guess it would have something of this vibe, these two words, it's over, it's over, it's over. And here we have Jesus showing up and saying the exact opposite is true. In fact, this is the culmination of everything I've been building to. Isn't it funny how we view stuff, man, this is a dead end. It's over. And that's the very place where God has been bringing everything to. The resurrection is not an epilogue. It's not like just a closing little capstone on the story. Just, well, we got to end it with they lived happily ever after. The whole incarnation, everything has been building to this moment. When she most felt like it was over was actually when Jesus was most revealing his power and his presence. And so here we see in verse 14, she's so overcome with sorrow and grief and these theories that generated and sustained that grief that she doesn't even recognize Jesus. And so we see him asking her the same question that was just asked by the angels. And notice her response as we alluded to earlier. She supposing him to be a gardener, verse 15, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. One of the things that happens between us and Jesus when we run with theories instead of the truths of God's word as revealed in his word is we get to the point we don't even recognize him. Aren't you amazed by how much religion claims Christ, tries to associate with him, and yet so egregiously misrepresents him? And so we need God's word. We need God's truth to guide our view of all that's going on in our world, not just our theories. And so Mary doesn't even recognize Jesus because of these theories in her heart and mind. And here's what's funny to me is one theory leads to another. She supposes they took the body. Now she supposes that Jesus is just a gardener. And therefore, maybe supposedly he took the body. One theory leads to another, and one conspiracy leads to another. And in the process, we miss all that God is revealing. All right, verse 16. 
I love this part of the story. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Now Mary sees or hears in verse 16 a familiar voice, a voice that that soothes her heart and pushes back against all her worst fears and theories. And she recognizes that is Jesus. Um, It's interesting that the first person to hear Jesus in his resurrected body speak was a woman. I don't want us to misunderstand that or underappreciate that, how significant that was in this culture and in this day that Jesus would first speak to a woman. Um, in this day, one author said, Jesus speaking to a woman, uh, speaking a woman's name as the first word in the new age of grace was an act of incredible significance. He wanted women to know that the old way of denigrating and exploiting and marginalizing one half of his creation was over. God was speaking directly to a woman first. Uh, and so we see him coming to her first and soothing her heart, speaking her name. Verse 17, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. And I think what's happening in verse 17 where he says, Touch me not, is he's basically saying, I'm not just Rabboni. I'm not just a teacher. I am the Son of God. I'm the one who came back from the grave. The relationship now has changed. It's more than just physical in nature. It's spiritual, it's family. There's a closeness that comes as a result of the resurrection. Ian, our oldest, he turned 17 today. Today's his birthday, and that just makes me feel further old and outdated and out of touch that I have almost um, an 18-year-old in my house and all that goes with that. And yesterday was his birthday party, and we had these big plans. We're going to watch the Buckeyes game. It's going to be fun, and we're going (laughs) to... And a few of you Michigan fans had fun yesterday, but uh, those Buckeyes in our house did not. But what was funny was watching my two sons, so Ian and I got rather quiet as the game went further along, and then my son Landon, who was born in Michigan, had this like gloating vibe he was giving off, okay? He didn't say anything. He was a gracious winner, but I mean, you know, we got destroyed yesterday, a very devastating loss, but one son not so happy, the other quietly uh, gloating. They're my sons, right? Isn't it interesting here in verse 17 that he refers to them now as his what? Go to my what? Brethren. This is a new label. This is the first time that Jesus Christ refers to his disciples. Remember earlier he talks about not only are you just my servants, you're my friends. Now he ratchets it up even a, a level higher, which is now your family. You're sons of God. Go to my brethren. Only possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An intimate status that was only available to us post-resurrection. Go to my brethren. And then in verse 18, notice her humble response. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Now, we just read that verse almost as if it's just a transition to the next section that we'll get to in a moment, but that's a very significant verse. Because back in verse number two, what is she telling the disciples? Her what? Her theories. Now she's seen and felt and heard the truth. And so she becomes an apostle to the apostles, not with her theories, 
but with what Jesus has entrusted her with, the living, risen Savior. And so may we be willing to draw closer to Christ by accepting and trusting and testifying of his revelation, not just our theories. And I was just thinking again back in verse 16, the word Mary. Isn't it amazing to think about this just for a moment of how close Christ wants to be close to us today? We have the one who conquered the grave, who knows our names. Like that's how powerful and personal this is meant to be between us and Jesus. He came back from the grave not to just rule and reign from a, a, an, an ostracized, elevated throne. He knows our names. He knows our struggles. He knows the heartache represented in this room and those watching online today. He knows us. He is our risen, living Savior. Far too often we allow our grief-generating theories to blind us to what he knows about us as well as what he's trying to reveal to us. I showed this picture earlier in the year. I think it was Easter Sunday, maybe. I was in the Holy Land in January, but this is a picture of what is called the garden tomb. And uh, this section of the tomb, there actually would have been a bench above this. You can kind of see that outline there. You see the darker section in the upper section. There would have been a shelf there and then likely a, a, a corpse committed to rest under it and then possibly one stacked on top of it, and then there's an opening the other way. But you notice the little symbol there at the top? Um, so this would be the garden tomb. I showed you Golgotha last week, and the fact these are about a three-minute walk from one another. But the symbol you see there actually was reconstructed by the Israeli um, antiquities authority. So that's not original to Christ's day. Likely that would have been put uh, from what we understand, would have been put over the actual symbol. So that actually is not even what was put there in uh, the 5th century A.D. by the Byzantines. So there was this grave, um, and uh, they, behind this, protected by the plaster that you see there, that tan color, behind it is the actual original symbol put there back in the 5th century A.D. Um, the top letters stand for Jesus Christos, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and then you see at the bottom, if you look real close, the left one's a little smudge, alpha, and then see the omega. I don't know if you know what an omega looks like, like a W. The beginning and the end, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, uh, the alpha and the omega. And this idea of uh, he is forever, he is eternal, he lives to reign and to rule. And there's a lot of debate about where Jesus is, is buried. I, I, I would maybe lean toward this location, but I can't archaeologically prove that this is where Jesus was buried and resurrected. But I just want to say this because this, I think, speaks to our tendencies as human beings, even as believers, is we get hung up on stuff. I don't know if this is where Jesus was buried. I just know he didn't stay where he was buried. And I don't worship a rock or a stone or a cliff face. I worship a living Savior. And if I have to pick between some relic that even can be verified archaeologically, or knowing that Jesus lives and reigns and intercedes for me, I'm going with option B every time. It, it, it's, it's not, we're not underprivileged with that. We, it supersedes any of these superficial things that we tend to get hung up on. And so just this thought before we move to our second point today, don't fill what the living Savior has emptied. Don't try to cram your theories and your, your takes or some guy that you find or gal you find online and try to fill in gaps that God has left there to draw you closer to him in. We often stuff the cracks and crevices 
with theories that God never intended us to trust in. So here's the question, and we'll move to our second point. What theories have you manufactured yourself or absorbed from others that replaces what it means to have a resurrected Jesus who you know personally? You don't need some intermediary. Lose the human-generated theories and gain a fresh, personal, daily vision of a resurrected Jesus. Lose the theories, gain a fresh vision of Jesus. That's what he wants to happen every day as we walk and as we talk with him. All right, number two. So we see, first of all, that this resurrection power is seen by those with theories. Number two, it's seen by those with fears. Seen by those with fears. (laughs) If you will now, go to verse 19. Then the same day of the evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, notice this next phrase, for fear of the Jews came Jesus and stood in the midst. Number two, Jesus was seen by those with fears. Those, first of all, with theories. Number two, those with fears. Um, I don't know if you did any Black Friday shopping this last week. I tried to avoid that as much as I could. I was in a couple of stores for a few moments, and one of them, one of the main uh, retailers here in our town, I have a friend of mine that I went to high school with who is the lead security guy that you don't see unless you've got yourself in trouble. And I happened to just see him. It was just crazy. You know, got all the door uh, buster deals or whatever and said his name. Hey, how you doing? He shook my hand, but I could tell he didn't have time to talk to me. I'm like, you're cool. You're good. Go. And I think he was going to go apprehend some shoplifter in the store. Right? He's had that like focused look. I saw it in the camera. I'm coming after you. And I didn't want to get between him and that. And he was focused on that. Have you ever been in a store where you, and maybe you did this even on Black Friday, where you go in and you don't buy anything? And then how do you leave the store, you know where I'm going with this, without looking suspicious? So you kind of like, you take out your keys, uh, you look at your phone, you try to have this very natural stroll, which looks so guilty, okay? Um, and I've joked with this friend of mine, you know, does, is that a thing? Like, do, do you, can you tell people like us that feel weird? He said, yeah, you're the ones that don't make me nervous, okay? It's the guy who doesn't look like he's, you know, trying to fake something. That's the guy I'm worried about. Um, but just, I, I'm, I'm fearful. I, I, I don't want to give off the wrong vibe. Here we see the disciples struggling with fear uh, where they should have had confidence and boldness. And here's the key. We have to, listen to me, we have to buy in on the resurrection on a regular basis or we will begin to sell our soul and to cheapen our faith and walk with Jesus by accepting something else that's a shortcut to resolving that fear. If your fears are not soothed by Jesus Christ's resurrection, you'll regularly be fearful because circumstances change and context changes and the body and the mind and the heart and people and just stuff and just life happens. And without faith and confidence that's moored in and anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will be prone to fearfulness. And so we see these disciples, they got used to Jesus talking to them and doing some miracles and being a part of their day-to-day existence, and they lost that. And so these fears, not just of the lost, but of the Jews that were coming after them, supposedly, are what ruled the day in their hearts. All right, let's talk about two things that if we'll draw closer to Jesus, it helps us in this area of fear. Number one, jot this down, draw even closer to Jesus' fear-destroying 
peace. Let's talk about two areas of where God, through Jesus' resurrection, helps us with fear. Number one, he destroys that fear with his peace. And you notice the end of verse 19, as he comes into this room, locked room, in his glorified body, came and stood in the midst and said unto them, peace, notice this, peace be unto you. And so on the same day that he was resurrected, Jesus comes to the disciples, assembled probably, likely in the same upper room um, that they had enjoyed the Lord's table for the first time three days prior. And this door was locked for fear of the Jews. And Jesus comes in and the first thing he says to them is not, what's wrong with you guys? Why didn't you believe? What, What are you so scared about? He just speaks one word to them, peace. Peace be unto you. A peace that prior to the cross and prior to the resurrection could not be experienced, could not be fully realized in the lives and hearts of these men. All right, verse 20, and when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. So after announcing peace to them, he then shows them the marks of his passion, his the, the spear in the side, the wounds in the hands and feet, he gives them evidence that it truly is he, the risen, bodily resurrected Savior that is before them. Um, I don't know how much you laugh. I don't know if laughing is your thing or not. Some of us laugh more than others. Some cry more than others. Some of us do both at the same time. We're not sure why we're laughing or crying, but we're just emotionally moved by something. Um, the other day I read this study that to me just challenges me in many ways. They said the average three-year-old, this is from Psychology Today, a study they recently did, the average three-year-old laughs 40 times a day. So a three-year-old will laugh 40 times a day, sometimes probably mockingly to their parents. Um, the average, listen, the average 40-year-old laughs three times per day. And I think if they would interview a 60-year-old and an 80-year-old, I would guess proportionally that number likely, if already it's shifted from 40 to 3, it probably goes down for that individual as they age. And the point was this, we probably ought to laugh a little bit more. We ought to be moved to that a little bit more. Um, When we read the verse in verse 20 where it says, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. So when he showed them, when he didn't just say to them peace, but then proved to them it was him, We just kind of read the word glad and we just read over that. Well, two or three of them cracked a smile. The word here has the idea of exceedingly rejoicing. Like so overwhelmed and moved that there was just shock. There was just the range of emotions. They were just moved deeply by what God had just showed to them. This moving, this rejoicing. May I say to you today, the answer for our fears is the peace of God that produces joy that nothing else can give us. And what we often do is we either try to get right to joy and we skip the peace that Jesus offers to us, or we just park on peace and we don't really process emotionally and spiritually what God has done for us to get to that joy that supplants or displaces the fear in our hearts. Um, in Luke chapter 24 and verse 41, it says, they, yet they believed not for joy. They were so over, they couldn't believe it. It was unbelievable what God had done through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Dane Ortland in his book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, that we read last year as a church in our small group, said this, moderate, tepid joy is not an apostolic Christianity 
Ordinary Christianity is a joy so raucous, so wild, without for a moment denying the hellish horrors of life, that it defies belief. And then he asks this question, how do we get it? By seeing the risen Christ. Where, brethren, today is the euphoria that we see here in verse 20? Why are we so down? Why are we so negative? Why are we so fearful? Where's that raucous, wild, if you will, that, that unbelievable levels of joy that come to those who realize Jesus gives us living peace? All right, verse 21. Then said Jesus to them again, peace be unto you. Notice this, this is key as well. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And so in verse 21, Christ is careful to say this peace is not just for you, it's also then to be shared with others around you. This empty tomb that displaces fear with peace is meant to be shared with the world. I think that's also often where we struggle with fear. Fear feeds on inactivity, right? A lot of fear is the shadow, it's not the substance. And much of our fear is because, listen to me, we're not doing what we're called to do, and that is to share the peace of God with this world. We, we jump in on the bemoaning and the worrying and the fretting and the fuming instead of sharing, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I serve a living Savior and sharing how they can have relationship with Him as well. And so this peace is not just meant to be absorbed, it's meant to be shared. And so the resurrection has certain implications for these disciples. It gave them peace. And it implied a commission. To be peaceless or missionless for us this morning shows where we have fears that have yet to see the risen Savior or where we need to see Him anew and afresh this morning. And so let this Jesus destroy fear with His peace. Number two, look here in verse 22. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Number two, draw even closer to Jesus, not only fear-destroying peace, but his fear-destroying spirit. So God gives us peace to help us with our fears through the empty tomb, through the risen Savior. Number two, he gives to us his spirit. He gives to us his spirit. I don't know how you spent your Thanksgiving besides just gorging yourself or whatever you did that I'm trying to keep you awake from this morning, all those extra carbs that you ingested. Um, but our family, we went to my dad's and my mom's house, and actually Moses and Cindy, uh, Moses is preaching this weekend uh, out of our church, and uh, so we got to my parents' house, we had dinner together, and then like typical redneck, red-blooded Americans, we went out and shot guns. That was our, that was our afternoon, okay? And I'm, when, I talk, when I'm talking guns, we are not really rednecks, we don't hunt a lot or anything like that, but for some reason, it was, it's what happened, so everybody brought what they had, and we had all kinds of firearms from a pistol that, or a BB gun that you couldn't hear it when it shot to my brother had borrowed an AR-15 from one of his buddies in Pennsylvania. I don't even know if they're allowed to have them in Pennsylvania anymore, so he brought it to Ohio. And so we just, we're just, you know, and we're shooting up pop cans and just mowing stuff down. It was great, very peaceful. And my parents live out in Carroll County. There's nobody within 50 miles, it feels like, of their house. And just destroying things. It was just a wonderful time together, okay? Um, can I tell you that God gives to us his spirit, and we often listen to me, we treat it like the little ping BB gun. When this spirit is like the AR-15, it, it destroys things. 
The Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, listen to me, is the same Spirit that's inside of us. Not just to soothe us with all kinds of positive messaging, but to destroy and to eradicate out of us all this negativity that so floods our hearts. And yet, why is it still there? That, that's convicting to me today. The fears that grip my heart, the what-ifs, and the I don't know, and maybe this, and maybe that, and maybe them. When I have the Spirit of God within me, this Spirit that wants to destroy the fear that I am so prone to. And so you notice in verse 22 that he breathes on them. This is kind of an interesting verse. What's this mean? He breathes on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And so for this new commission that he just gave them in verse 21, he now gives them the power they need to do it. He gives to them the Holy Spirit. The only way I've been able to dig or or parse apart, if you will, this verse, reconciling it with the other passages, is you have in Genesis chapter 2, he breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, right? So you see physically the Spirit of God giving life to man. And so we see at least a parallel here with the new creation and spiritually now this resurrection power of God is breathed into them. I, I would tend to lean toward that this reception of the Spirit was an anticipation period of the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit fully came. Uh, It was a partial limited gift of knowledge, understanding, and empowerment that they would fully receive that they had to wait on until Acts chapter 2. But he he begins to give them the preview and the anticipatory power that would be theirs to follow through in what God had entrusted to them as his mission and calling. And so much of our fear, just like these men in this room, uh, the feeling is is of the fear is of feeling or being powerless. How can we be, feel powerless when we have a Jesus we follow who gives to us His power, who conquered death? What's left to conquer? If the power of God can overcome gra- the grave, then we have the power of God at our disposal. You could ro- jot down these couple of verses and chew on them on your own time. Romans chapter eight and verse eleven. But the Spirit of Christ of hi- But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. The same spirit that brought Jesus out, Romans 8.11 says, is the same spirit that is put inside of us the moment we receive Jesus Christ as Savior. And then a second one, 2 Timothy 1.7. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of a sound mind. Fear robs us of the soundness of our mind. Fear robs us of the love we should have for God and our neighbor. And God has given us the spirit of power to push back against those things, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. If the spirit of God is not enough, you do not appreciate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is sufficient. It's more than sufficient to eradicate fear, and to give us fresh power. All right, verse 23. He goes on, Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. In verse 23, Jesus here is giving the apostles, and by extension we, the church, the privilege of announcing heaven's terms on how a person can receive forgiveness. If one believes in Christ, 
He then has the right to announce his forgiveness. We do as his followers to those who trust him. If a person rejects Jesus' sacrifice, then we as a believer can announce that person is not forgiven. That's the weightiness of our mission. It's forgiveness or unforgiveness. What a responsibility we have through the Spirit. A few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with one of our church men. We were having breakfast together, just catching up. Been a little bit since we had talked much. And we were talking about my sons, their generation, and those who come after. And we were just talking about the concerns we have for them. And we were just kind of observing things that are different in, in their generation than in ours. And this man would be a generation ahead of me in age, just how things have shifted and changed. And when I look into the eyes of young people today, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I tend to give off the vibe of fear, a fear that is not healthy um, vigilance and soberness, but it actually, if not careful, could paralyze them, could really hinder their own growth and vitality and vibrancy as they follow God's will for their life. And I was just sharing with this man something God had used to convict me recently. Uh, There's a man who's a well-known theologian in our day who's suffering with pancreatic cancer. Um, And he was, the little interview he was doing um, that I was watching, he was talking about every night he would go to bed with his wife, holding her hand, not knowing if that's the last night he would be with her. And he's processing that every day. Some of you guys have been through that season. And one of the questions that the interviewer asked of him is he said, um, what do you say to young people who are worried and fearful about the future? What, what, what hope can you give them? What can they hang their hat on to give them peace and hope? And he said this, and it was so powerful, hearing this from a man who has a terminal illness, moments likely from leaving this life, and he said this, if the resurrection is true, if the resurrection is true, then everything's going to be okay. That's simple, but that's powerful. If the resurrection is true, then everything is going to be okay, no matter how fearful you feel today. No matter how much in the news and in the world and around you, that vibe is given off. If the resurrection is true, then everything is going to be okay. And so our fears in Jesus' resurrection are the antithesis of one another. Where are you allowing fears to come between you and a living Jesus? Ask for his help to eradicate those. Saying, I don't want any fear to be between my soul and the Savior. We sing or think about that, nothing between my soul and the Savior. It's not always sin. It's not always blatant heresy. It's just fear. It's just angst of soul that keeps us from being close to a risen Savior. And I love that Jesus comes near them in this moment of fear. All right, number three. Go, if you will, now to verse 24. And we have infamous Thomas that I'm sure loves this part of the story being recorded. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, or a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, put my finger in the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thirdly, this resurrected Jesus is seen by those who have doubts. So those with theories, those with fears, and lastly, those with doubts. 
And so the resurrection, excuse me, of Jesus from the dead is a gift from the Heavenly Father to eliminate our doubts, not just someday when we see him in eternity, but to eliminate the doubts today. He wants to address those. He wants to resolve those through the resurrection. If you think about it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has some messages about eternity, but it also says that today matters. He came back from the grave, not just for when there is time no more and, there, and we're outside of time and, and space in the sense that we are now, but he also came to deliver us from the things that hold us down in this present world. And so the message of the resurrection is that this world matters, including where we tend to be doubtful. All right, let me give you two things as we finish in this quickly. Number one, draw even closer to Jesus, doubt eliminating proof. So he provides proof that he has resurrected. He's very careful to do that for this man, Thomas, who is doubting. Uh, Verse 26, so after he makes this rash statement, completely understandable from a human perspective, he wasn't there when Jesus showed up the first time. And after eight days, verse 26, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Can you almost visualize, and I, I know I'm kind of filling in the gaps, but so Jesus, uh, is Thomas there, you know, checking with whoever's surveilling the situation? I know he didn't actually do this, but the fact that Jesus, he came back when Thomas was there is just profound. It then came Jesus, the doors being shut, so same exact setting, and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, can you imagine this? Reach hither thy finger. All right, I heard you. And behold my hands, reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. Not faithless, but believing. You know what's striking to me about verse 27 is Jesus does not come near to Thomas to judge him for his doubts. Listen to me, he comes near him to eliminate his doubts. Can I encourage you, go to God with your doubts. We talked about this with your burdens. Don't just count your blessings. Count your burdens before the Lord. Let his grace and just that he knows it uh, soothe your heart. But secondly, go to God not just when you believe him. Go to him when you doubt him. He, He wants to be a part of that process of resolving those doubts through his resurrection power. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord... And my God, we don't know if Thomas actually did thrust his hand. We don't know if he actually touched the nail prints. I would tend to guess he didn't, would be my thought. As he's overwhelmed with not only what he sees, but the fact, the demeanor of Jesus to come near him in this doubtful season and to love him enough and to draw near him when he was most pushing away the realities of the resurrection, he's moved to acknowledge that Jesus is his Lord and his God. All right, lastly, number two, draw even closer to Jesus, doubt eliminating scripture. And this is the most important part of our study today because we have access to it this morning. We don't have access to the empty tomb, as we alluded to with the picture. We don't have access to Jesus. We lock all the doors in this building, and he's going to show up this morning in the way that these disciples experience. But this last part uh, is, is ours today as well. Verse 29. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they, who's you're talking about, likely us. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Draw even closer to Jesus, doubt eliminating scripture. Um, 
how many of you would be painful for you to go back over, I don't know, when you started your, your Thanksgiving eating that kind of just bled into a whole week almost of your dietary choices? But would it hurt you and maybe make you a little nauseous to list everything you ate? Um, in fact, some of you, I mean, I, could, I won't ask for raising hands, but how many of you ate for breakfast like pie or something and you would never want somebody to know some things you ate or some random thing that went down your gullet that you don't want anybody to see a replay of? Our mouth is, 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 a, is a wide open, it, it's something that controls us, our, our appetite, our desires, physically and otherwise. You know, it's also true of our view of God and His power and relevance in our lives. It's more about what we have to say than what God has to say. Our doubts are evidence that we're trusting more in our words or other people's words than God's words. And so what John does here to bring this to conclusion is he reminds us that it is the Word of God, the Word of the living God and the living Savior that eliminates our doubts. Our doubts are always fed by making it more about what human mouths have to say than what God's Word and His living Savior has to say. And so in verse 29, notice that Jesus blesses those who believe in Him without seeing. They just believe what God's Word has to say. Verse 30, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. Isn't that interesting to think about? What are those that John's thinking about there that we have no clue about, we've never heard about, which are not written in this book? Notice verse 31, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and notice this, and that believing ye might have what? Life through his name. And so these miracles that are recorded that all end with the crescendo of his resurrection are to cause us to read them in his word and then to believe them where we are prone to doubt. And as we believe them, we have access to this same life that Jesus provides to us today. This question, will all that we, with all that we can see in the risen Savior, we have no reason to have doubts. Where are you showing doubt and allowing doubt to come between you and the risen Savior that clouds your view of Him or clouds your confidence in Him? Allow the resurrection to remove the doubts. All right, I want to show you this last picture. So I was going through pictures of the Holy Land. Sorry, you can't see it real well with the projectors. But you will see this is a picture of the outside of the garden tomb. Uh, there's more light toward the top. But if you look toward the bottom, can you see the two silhouettes kind of? They're shadowy there. In the real picture, you can see better. The guy on the left is a guy that I went to the Holy Land with. He's kind of got his hands in his pocket. I'm just filling in what you can't see there. And then the guy on the right is me. So we, were, we, had, to, we had to wait on something. I forget what it was. But I, I don't know what we were talking about there. But I was just struck by how we're just having casual conversation in front of the empty tomb where Jesus possibly, likely came out of. And we're just being so casual about it. It was a picture one of my friends on the trip took, and he sent it to me. And I, I almost feel bad that I wasn't you know, on my knees or, I don't know, some, some moment. Just, yeah, no big deal. We're just in Israel next to this, this grave of some great Savior, Jesus. And, you know, how's the weather back home, you know, this morning or tonight? And I, here's my thought to you. Here's the closing thought. We often treat far too casually the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And listen to me, that's why our lives are inundated and our hearts are overwhelmed with theories and fears 
and doubts. Instead of having hearts gripped anew and afresh with, he lives, he lives, he lives. And because he lives, I don't need to come up with theories. I don't need to tolerate doubts. I don't need to tolerate fears. He lives, he lives, he lives. Give you this last statement and we'll pray. C.S. Lewis once said this, I love this. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it, Christianity, cannot be is moderately important. You know, the greatest enemy to the cause of Christ on planet earth this morning is not the heathen that rage against him. It's people attend church at 1030 in Worcester, Ohio, and other places like it every Sunday morning that treat Christianity as moderately important. God sent his son to die on a cross. That says this thing's important. He laid in the tomb for three days and three nights. He came out of that tomb. It it matters. Does it matter to you? Does it matter to me? If it does, that alone pushes out the theories, the fears, and the doubts. Don't wait until you see Jesus face to face to fully let the realities of the resurrection flood your heart and life. Start today, because we know about it today. May we live in light of it for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.